then you have more progesterone resistance and that's why you're not implanting. Hi, I'm Mary Wong. And I'm Dr. Tanya Wild. We're wellness experts, fertility strategists, and moms who overcame infertility infusing science and all things natural. We are on a mission to boost your mood, your bod, and your inner mama spirit as you navigate this thing called life. From fertility to pregnancy and mamahood through menopause. Think of us as your own personal fertility squad as you make, grow, birth, and raise your baby. Fasten your seatbelts, lean lean in, and get ready to learn and be encouraged. This is my Fertology Podcast. Anyhow, so going into endometriosis, yeah, I was diagnosed uh, like at 30 or maybe a couple years shy of 30. And it was based on an internal examination where they actually, it was a resident. So it wasn't very comfortable. Um, But anyhow, so it was based on an internal exam and they tested, like they kind of examined with two fingers, the uterosacral ligament, which is kind of near the ovaries and between the uterus and cervix and such. And they found nodules there. And they said that that was a one way that they could, in addition to my symptom history, which was severe dysmenorrhea or painful periods and uh, you know, at the, at the time, like cold sweats and sometimes vomiting with menstrual cycles. So like in Chinese medicine, like a total blood stasis picture, right? So lots of intensity. Anyhow, they diagnosed me um, through the clinical exam because they said, you know, at the time you're, you're planning a family. So it's best maybe not to do the laparoscopy because if we do the laparoscopy, which is when they kind of insert a little um, camera after inflating your abdomen with air to the pelvic region to assess the health of the uterus and your ovaries, which requires um, three tiny little incisions, like pinhole yeah, incisions. Yeah. Like tiny, tiny incisions. They said, we won't go in and just examine. We will only, we will only go in if we're going to examine and do surgical removal if we find endometriosis. So I can't wait to ask Dr. Sharma about that, if that's still a thing. Um, and at the time I said, oh, no, I definitely don't want surgery. I would love for you to go in and look, but that wasn't allowed. So I kind of, I guess I got the label of endometriosis based on that clinical exam, my symptom history. And then on my ovaries, I had endometriomas, which burst and resolved later. So then, um, yeah, so it's uh, kind of, you know, endometriosis for those who have it know how it can uh, really impinge on your life because you can be flatlined when you get your menstrual cycle. It's a lot of pain, a lot of pelvic pain. It can extend beyond that. I find with my patients, I no longer suffer from it with my menstrual cycles. Thank goodness. And they often say, you know, uh, once you have, you know, you get pregnant you have children, it can go away because the pregnancies can kind of have a cause a reset. And it seemed to do that for me, but for you, but not everybody where, yeah. yeah, it doesn't happen uh, where they continue or it gets worse postpartum for yeah. some patients. Right. And so it'll be interesting again to hear Dr. Sharma's opinion on treatments, kind of medical treatments, the best. And then we're going to go into uh, natural treatment options because interestingly enough, at the time I got that diagnosis, 
the gynecologist said to me, he said, you know, um, I have a nephew who's studying naturopathic medicine and I'm so proud of him because I've been referring to naturopathic doctors over the years because they seem to bridge the gap along with Chinese medicine acupuncturists um, in terms of treating endometriosis. Like how cool is that? Because he said, we get lost sometimes as to how to treat this beyond surgery and beyond the birth control pill. So I thought it was a very advanced forward thinking a gynecologist that was like 15 or 17 years ago and he was saying yeah i actually so he said go see a naturopath like i know you're one but you should you know doctors shouldn't treat themselves you go get it go get help go see an acupuncturist and i did um and i and i got help and and it really actually did make a big difference so it was a learning um practice for me as well well thanks for uh, sharing your personal story because i do know um I don't, I think he might be retired now, but there's an OBGYN in Toronto who is very famous, Dr. Kylie. And okay. he actually, um, he specialized in fertility, uh, sorry, not fertility, in endometriosis. Mm-hmm. And for uh, all women, he would say, uh, do acupuncture, do Qigong, like, and of course, you know, I think doctors can sway that way more when they've had personal experience because his wife had it. So he was watching her and what Mm -hmm. she did and what helped her. So then, of course, she says, he says, "Okay, you need to do this, this and this. So it wasn't just Western medicine. It was the integration and bridging the gap of both worlds, because there's so much that you can do beyond Western medicine. So we're going to speak to the Western piece today whenever she shows up and then and then you know uh, a follow-up um we're gonna actually have two episodes one maybe back to back and we're not even sure how it's gonna go but you're gonna speak to to it from more of the lifestyle and naturopathic point of view and then we're Mm -hmm. gonna do another one where um i will speak to the chinese medicine point of view and yay dr sharma made it and like we were already explaining how how amazing you are as a human being to be so freaking busy at the fertility clinic and squeezing time in because this is important we want to educate and you are part of this education and in fact you are the one who reached out to me and said mary we should talk about endo i'm like yes absolutely so here we are so thank you thank you thank you for being here again for those of you who do not know dr sharma was already interviewed in our previous episode which was episode number 15 and we were talking and speaking to prenatal tests should we do it should we not And so go check that out. But here, let's stay on topic and let's talk about all things endo right now. Okay. So thanks again for being here. Thank you. It's a great way to close off Endometriosis Awareness Month and highlight this important disease. Absolutely. So then let's let's have you explain exactly, uh, you know, what would the definition be of endometriosis? Yeah. So it's always good to start with definitions. So endometriosis is a common gynecologic condition. It can affect women of all reproductive ages, um, starting with like teenagers when they start their menses, um, all the way through your 20s and 30s, a common reason why women are put on the birth control pill or struggle with fertility problems. And even after you're done your childbearing, it can cause symptoms. It has effects on pregnancy and really doesn't truly burn out until a woman goes into menopause or God forbid you have to do surgery to remove their ovaries and uterus. But what exactly is endometriosis? So it's a condition where tissue that's very similar to the uterine lining or the endometrial tissue, which is really the tissue that you 
excrete every month when you have your menses um, and is also responsible for um, implantation. That's where the embryo sticks when you actually get pregnant. So what happens is, is that tissue grows what we call ectopically. So that tissue is normally supposed to be found just in the uterine cavity in the womb. And instead it grows in other places. So typically extra uterine environments, so the surface of the uterus, behind the uterus, around the bowel, in the um, rectosynchmoid area, or the cul-de-sac, and some of the symptoms that are caused from that are pain, painful um, intercourse. It can grow in and around the ovaries. It can produce ovarian cysts. It can grow on the peritoneal lining, which is the thin lining that lines the abdominal and peritoneal cavity and cause implants all over. It can um, grow on the fallopian tubes. There have been case reports that describe weird locations for endometriosis like the diaphragm and the lungs and the belly button yeah um, those are yeah yeah and those, those are more outrageous yeah 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 sure. mm-hmm. common things being common we typically see endometriosis in the pelvic cavity and that's where we focus on um so that's really what it is it's it's abnormal growth of endometrial tissue outside the uterine cavity where it's normally supposed to be there's various theories about how endometriosis arises it's very multifactorial there's some genetic linkages, although there's no single gene that's been identified. There's a theory of retrograde inflammation and retrograde flow, which means that the tissue from the uterus, whenever a woman has cramps and menstruates, it goes through the tubes and that's what allows it to propel into the pelvis and make it stick to other places. There's this theory of metaplasia, which is um, that cells that are outside the uterus actually change and they transform into endometriotic cells. The theory that I talked about, the retrograde menstruation is called Samson's um, theory of retrograde menstruation. There's other theories as well. It's really a multifactorial disease, probably very much also influenced by diet and lifestyle, caffeine intake, things like that. And I think, you know, we'll probably talk about that a little later, about what kind of things you can modify in your day-to-day life that could improve symptoms from endometriosis. Awesome. And that is so, so, so key because it's like, how do you live with it? And now just going back, because uh, we just want to be clear that, you know, not all women with endometriosis will have pain pain because pain is certainly can be a sign right so you i just want to go back and say that um, yeah. i find that interesting because some women with very little uh, endometriosis found maybe because they were stress suffering from fertility will have lots of very little pain, but lots of uh, uh, endo or a lot of pain and very little lesions yes um, and before we move forward what are the most common areas that you would find it is it the ovaries yeah. in the yeah. yeah so typically the most common area is the ovaries so typically a routine patient comes in for an ultrasound and may have some extra pain with their periods. And as you said, may not. And you do an ultrasound, a pelvic ultrasound, and you see some ovarian cysts that are like anywhere between two and sometimes even seven, eight centimeters, and they don't know. And some women do know they come in with pelvic pain and they have endometriotic cysts. Whether that is because it's the most common location or it's the most easily seen, it's hard Mm -hmm. to say because Mm -hmm. the little endometriotic implants that, you know, when I used to do more surgery pre-COVID, that I would go in and do laparoscopies to look for endometriosis. Sometimes you see studying all over the pelvis, but that's not something that you can easily see on ultrasound, which is something that is easily accessible to us. MRI is a little bit more specific for endometriosis and the implants, um, but, you know, you don't see patients coming in on a monthly basis for an MRI. So typically, yes, we see 
the ovarian endometrioma is most commonly on ultrasound. Um, on MRI, you can see other locations a little bit more. And if you do a laparoscopy, you can actually see the small powder burn implants, uh, the bluish black spots um, on laparoscopy. And that's really the gold standard for diagnosis. But even though the ovary is most expected, like I said, anywhere in the pelvis is fair game. I love it that you're bringing up the diagnosis piece and we want to go into this further. Uh, but the other thing I want to actually, again, address is, you know, people start having fears, right? So I, I, we want to be clear that because you have endometriosis, endometriosis does not equal infertility. Correct. You want to speak to this? Dr. Yeah, Sama? absolutely. And I'm always fascinated in our field about how things that sometimes, you know, we think we know all of this stuff and it seems so black and white, but then a patient just walks in pregnant. I can't tell you the number of times yes. that a stage three to four endometriosis patients has has tried IVF, has tried IUI, and they're like, you know what, I'm going to take a break. And they go out into the normal world and do normal things and they show up and they're pregnant. So um, what I always say to my patients is as long as there's an egg there, there's open tubes and sperm. And interestingly, endometriosis patients, even though this is like an anatomic disease, a lot of the times, many of them will have open tubes because it's outside the tubes that's affected. So right. oftentimes they'll have open tubes. So if a sperm and an egg get through and meet and implant, it can happen. So even though we target treatment of endometriosis, I would absolutely have to agree with you that it's always possible. But it's like anything else in medicine and particularly reproductive health, because women are being so proactive about reproductive health. Oftentimes, if I see a woman who comes in and looks like she's an endometriosis candidate, we do testing and there's you know ovarian reserve issues, or even if there's not, we'll talk about being proactive and getting pregnant sooner or freezing eggs or freezing embryos just because the disease burden can worsen. So you just hit the nail on the head. You said, you know, is there low ovarian reserve? Do you find any kind of correlation between endometriosis and lower ovarian reserve? Yeah, great question. I mean, endometriosis can affect all aspects of reproductive health and fertility. So if you kind of Google or you read in our textbooks, basically it can affect follicular genesis, which is the growth and development of the egg or the follicle. It can affect the quality of the egg because of inflammatory mediators that are secreted. And that theory also applies to tubal transport and implantation. And, um, you know, there are theories that endometriosis associated endometrium in the uterus is not as healthy for implantation um, as well. So it does affect implantation. Um, it can affect sperm transport um, and it can even affect the early pregnancy and ongoing pregnancy. So in answer to your question, yes. Um, when I see a patient who has an endometrioma, so a cyst in the ovary or any signs of endometriosis, the worry is, is that that cyst is kind of pressing on the no normal ovarian tissue in addition to the inflammation. And yes, I do see lower ovarian reserve. But you have to remember that also has to be correlated with the patient's age. If I have a 32-year-old woman who has PCOS and endometriosis, she probably has a lot of eggs to work with that I can work around the endo. But certainly age and endometriosis is not a great combination because age already poses a detriment on ovarian reserve. And if you have four follicles and I can't get to those follicles because there's a big endometrioma, it's a lot tr more tricky. So and then, of course, the more progressive the endo is that has not been diagnosed, right? Then it makes it yeah. that much more tricky as the years go by. You're so right. I mean, certainly there's an association between higher stage endometriosis and poor reproductive outcome. Um, so if you're a stage three or stage four, a lot of times arguably we'll say don't even bother with surgery, just move on with IVF. There's lots of data, including a large multi-center trial done in the New England Journal of Medicine, probably now like 20 years ago, which one of the Canadian centers was a big part of, 
have, that if you have stage one or two endometriosis on laparoscopy and you actually remove it, the natural pregnancy rate is significantly increased. So with mild disease, treatment can actually really improve outcomes. With severe disease, it's a little more tricky, as we said. Go ahead. How often are doctors using um, uh, the gold standard for laparoscopy? Yeah. yeah. So I guess I have to ask, is that pre or post COVID? And yeah. it also depends on <laughs> yes. what, what kind of fertility doctor you are. I mean, mm-hmm. it's really interesting as we look at the evolution of our field. I mean, with the progress of IVF and the fact that people are really believing that IVF is a great type of treatment, offering insurance coverage, and so on and so forth, a lot of women and a lot of doctors feel that if you have um, bad endometriosis and there is an age factor or anything else, it's better to avoid surgery, avoid the decrement in ovarian reserve you can have with surgery. Because once you start peeling out endometriosis from the ovaries, you might take out some normal cells too. And it's better to move towards IVF while you have good reserve, get out those eggs and create embryos, maybe put you on medical treatment to suppress the endo and then transfer rather than doing surgery. So I'll tell you, even in my practice, my feeling has changed. I don't look into laparoscopy unless there's a large cyst and I can't access the ovaries for IVF or for IUI or stimulation, or if the patient is in debilitating pain, then what I'll do is consider doing IVF freezing embryos and then sending them for a laparoscopy to get out the disease. And then you already have your embryos in the bank, so you don't worry so much. Yes, yes. And you know what? I am that recipient. I was that patient before the t- this, this new way of um, doing things because they did my laparoscopy before IVF. So it's like sucks. Because it actually did um, decrease my numbers, right? Yeah, yeah. And now we know. It's like, oh, no, no, you don't do the surgery. Yeah, don't touch it. Just go direct to IVF. Yeah, but, you right? know, this is research and learning and all of that, right? Totally. Before you hopped on, we were talking about uh, my own personal experience with an amazing gynecologist at McMaster University. Um, and uh, he was he was suggesting that I don't do the laparoscopy because they would you know not go in and just uh, assess. They would do surgery no matter what. I said I just want to know yeah. if I have. You want a diagnostic, which is totally yeah. fair. And uh, and then and so I agreed. And I said okay, let's just base it on the fact that I have you know lesions on my uterosacral ligament. It's on the ovary kinesis that maybe like the, you know uh, endometriosis. Anyhow, what he said, which was really fascinating, he said you know naturopathic doctors and TCM docs, because he knew I was an ND just recently sure. graduated at the time. Sure. You guys bridge the gap. You guys definitely, we turn to you for treatments, lifestyle changes. And I love that you say it's true. That's wonderful. Can you tell us <laughs> your experience with, uh, you know, patients who are seeing uh, holistic practitioners, uh, such as NDs and TCM doctors, and um, if that's impacting, you know, their health, let's say they're going through totally. fertility treatments. Yeah. I I mean, like, I am fully appreciative and supportive of a good relationship between doctors like yourself and myself. I definitely think complementary and lifestyle changes, not just with endo, but with all aspects of reproductive health and probably general health in general, are really coming to a forefront. And that sort of hand-in-hand partnership for patients is really helping, and they feel like they're in control of their care. So, particularly for endometriosis, there's actually data to support lowering your caffeine intake, um, exercise. Um, managing your lifestyle to improve symptoms. I mean, I would say that I think diet, caffeine intake, and exercise have shown remarkable effects in my patients in terms of how they feel. I think in terms of 
actual endometriotic lesions. I mean, you would need like real data with a pre and post laparoscopy, which most patients don't have. So I really use pain scales and how a patient feels. But certainly those patients that weren't able to get pregnant before and then make these modifications and show up pregnant or need minimal means to get pregnant, whereas they failed before, there's got to be something there. So I'm a believer and I've seen changes in my patients for sure. Thank you for awesome. sharing that. That's Thank awesome. You. So now going back to the diagnosis, okay? So uh, we, you talk, you spoke about MRI and you spoke about laparoscopy. So, and oh yes, okay. So yes. tell us a bit more about like how you would do it now because you're trying to avoid surgery while you're doing IVF. Yeah, you got it. You got it. So it all starts with the initial consult, right? Every time I meet a patient, you know, regardless if they're an endo patient or not, I ask them about symptoms of endometriosis, signs and symptoms, pelvic pain with their menses that's out of proportion to what we expect. Although, as you both very well know, pain is very subjective, right? There's different women have different pain tolerances. So you have to take that a little bit with a grain of salt. I also ask about if they take any pain medication during their menses, particularly NSAIDs, which are great for pain control and blood flow. Um, and can help endometriosis. Um, again, same thing, pain threshold. I have patients who are like, I never take medication. I just sort of bust through it. Um, and I have patients who say, yeah, I take it every month. I need it. I'll die if I don't. I'll miss days of work. Miss days off and days off from their jobs or school is also a very important indicator. I ask about things like uh, changes in bowel movements and changes in their pain scale with intercourse because those are also telltale. And then, yes. of course, the, the diagnostics. Ultrasound is our mainstay of diagnostics. I mean, all women have it. It's easily and readily accessible. So that's the first sort of uh, diagnostic imaging study. So ultrasound modalities. I mean, I will tell you in our practice, we ordered the CA125 level, which is a marker for inflammation. Endometriosis has been touted to be a marker for ovarian cancer. I will be the first to say it's not very sensitive or specific. I have patients okay. who have endometriosis with very high levels. I have patients who have endometriosis with normal levels, but it is a bit of a guide, especially in a patient where they say, I have really bad pelvic pain, mm-hmm. um, but the ultrasound is normal. Um, um, and if they have an elevated CA125, I'm like, hmm, there might be something going on there. So signs and symptoms, blood work, ultrasound. MRI is not something they order on a routine basis just because they're difficult to get. And um, I don't really necessarily think it guides my management per se. The gynecologic surgeons, however, do order it more because the location of the endometriosis and identifying where the implants are outside of ultrasound can actually guide them for their surgical management because they sort of like a, a, a hunt, like they they know what they're looking for. It's a puzzle. They kind of figure out where it is and then they, they can go in and take it out. So in the fertility world, we don't order MRI that frequently unless, you know, an ultrasound says, Ooh, is there a fluid filled tube or a blood filled tube? And we're not sure Then an MRI can be a little bit more sensitive than ultrasound. So really I use signs and symptoms. And then I put the whole picture together. What's the woman's ovarian reserve age and her desire? Does she want to have more than one child? Is there an element of endometriosis? Do I think there are rule out endometriosis? So then I would proceed with more aggressive therapy because I'm concerned a little bit about their response. Cause we know that endo patients probably have a reduced response to fertility drugs and fertility outcomes. So we want to be a little bit more proactive. So you spoke to about, you know, being proactive for the fertility bit, but now, well, actually it's still part of the fertility picture, but now we're talking about receptivity. So now you've done the IVF, you've retrieved eggs, you have some chromosomally normal embryos. You got it. And then how does it affect if you have um, on implantation when you have endometriosis? 
Yeah. So the implantation black box, this is like, (laughs) as we all know, super tricky because we've achieved this goal of being able to, in the lab and with our stimulation protocols, make these beautiful, nice, tested, genetically normal embryos. And I think for patients, really, it's an interesting point because they feel like when they've gone through all of that and they have these euploid embryos, they should automatically stick um, because they're normal and everything's about the egg and the embryo and the, the um, chromosomes, which that is a big part of it. But implantation is a bit of a black box. And, you know, we don't have really great tests for implantation yet. And so what we do in normal circumstances, we prepare the lining with hormones or naturally, and then we stick an embryo in and it's supposed to stick. But we do know that only 60% of normal embryos actually stick. So you have to take that statistic into consideration first, even in an endo patient. But yes, and in an endo patient that has repetitive implantation failure, so now you've gone through your, okay, that was just bad luck. Let's try again. Your lining's okay. What else is happening? So what can you do? So this is where um, the receptivity assays come into play. And so although they're not 100% evidence-based, I think in a patient who's had a couple of implantation failures, it's um, reasonable um, to do the endometrial trio or endometrial receptivity assay, which looks at three things, the receptivity, the microbiome, and looks for chronic endometritis. So basically looks at the bacterial content of the endometrium and looks at gene profiling to make sure it's receptive. One step further from that is a test called the receptiva, which is tailored specifically. It's also a biopsy of the lining. It's tailored specifically for the endometrium in presumed or uh, considerable endometriosis patients. And that biopsy looks for a gene protein called BCL2. If that protein is upregulated, it's an indicator or a marker for implantation. And so women who have higher levels of BCL2, the data shows that you should downregulate them and potentially do surgery or put them on prolonged hormonal suppression for endo before they undergo an FET. Are these 100%? No but they give us some tools to sort of guide our treatment if a patient does have implantation failure. Although if you look at the real data, if the lining looks good, the uterine uh, cavity is normal, one arguably would say just keep transferring. Would it make sense to maybe proactively do the receptivia test? If you know somebody has endometriosis before you- It's a question. I mean, it's a good question. I don't think the science is 100% there yet that we recommend it as a standard routine test, kind of Mm -hmm. like, you know, you have to have a normal sonohistogram, make sure there's no polyps or fibroids. That's like quid pro quo. But the receptiva and the ERA, it's up to the doctor-patient relationship. It is an expensive test. It's not standard of care. We don't know if it's needed in all patients. I mean, certainly I agree with you. If you have an endo patient that has only one euploid blast that we worked really hard and we did three IVFs to get, absolutely, I offer it. And patients often will take me up on it and do it. And, you know, they want to know that everything looks good. The other option is to suppress them. So a lot of the surgeons after a patient has surgery will just suppress them with Lupron for three months and then say, go about your frozen embryo transfers. So you can also do BCPs, birth control pills for six to eight weeks and just say, let's transfer you then. So lots of options, lots Mm -hmm. of diagnostic modalities that are coming into play that we just need more research on to see if they should be standard, but certainly um, tools that you can offer your patients and diagnostic modalities that are available. And, you know, as a sort of innovative REI, I really think um, patient-centered and individualized patient care and a discussion with the patient is important. So all those things you mentioned, offering it before transfer, considering whether we do it proactively, saying, okay, if one transfer fails, we'll do it. All of these things are, are things I talk to the patient about and, and offer them. Nice. Yeah, so, so just to slow that down and, and to really grasp that, it's like, so yes, 
there are lots of proactive tests that you can do. And, and then um, if there's a suspicion of endo, you could actually bypass tests is what I'm hearing and just actually yes. go down, regulate with the Lupron or birth control pill yes. and not yes. even worry about the tests. You right? got it. Or you could just do one or two transfers and see what happens. Because even if your suspicion for endometriosis is there, it's you think it's just mild disease and kind of going back to what we talked about in the beginning, that it's a little paradoxical. Endo patients can just get pregnant too. Maybe you yes. really just needed the IVF to bypass the tubes and the ovaries, but the implantation piece is okay because just like the pain factor, not every patient who has endo has an implantation problem. It's funny because I used to flatline with my periods and throw up with them and like severe dysmenorrhea and painful periods. And then also had polycystic ovary syndrome, got pregnant with the first transfer and then got pregnant naturally uh, leading for a transfer. So with endo, like, so I think it's so variable in it, really is. but had I known at the time about the receptivia test being who I am, I'd probably be like, Oh, before I do this transfer, because of all the investment, totally. in energy, yeah. I'd rather know. Um, so it's nice to know it's an, it's an offering for patients and ballpark. What's the cost approximately? Like, is it like, a yeah, it's about a thousand dollars. Yeah. It's about a thousand for these biopsy tests. So it's not cheap outside. Um, It's through an outside lab, not, I mean, currently, at least it's not through our centers because it is a patented test by those. um, Canadian? Is it a Canadian? uh, There is a Canadian iGenomics that runs the test. Originally, the endometrial receptivity assay or ERA was developed by a Spanish group, uh, Antonio Pellicer et al. Um, Receptiva, actually, I don't know where it was originally developed. Mm -hmm. I believe there's a Canadian lab I can't, I can't tell you for sure. I, I can't remember the last one. Yeah, I think there is yeah. because it's just becoming more common now, right? So rather than have to ship it to the US, wait shipping times because patients want to move on. Absolutely. I believe you can. I, In all honesty, I've done only a few receptivias, but, uh, and interestingly, the few I've done, they're clear endo patients, like surgery proven endo patients, and they've had normal results. So it's interesting. Oh, interesting. Not oh. everyone has an implantation mm. issue per se. Right, right. Exactly. The other thing you have to know, though, is that even if your endometrial receptivity test is abnormal, it still doesn't mean that's the gold standard and you need to, I don't know, use surrogate or change things, right? right? So it's just a guide. All these tests are guides. Yeah. Thank you for really yes. clarifying that because yeah. here's what people hear. It's like, oh my gosh, now I need this and this and this. And it's like, whether you have these tests or not, people will still get pregnant despite it all. Yes, you guys. Yeah. Haven't we all seen yes. this? Yes. So at the end of the day, it's like, hey, guys, there is hope no matter what you're facing. <laughs> I agree. Really. Uh, um, so before you run away, uh, we were talking about, you know, getting pregnant and then the receptivity. But how about endo? Is there any impact during pregnancy? Yeah, that's that's a great question. I actually learned a little bit more about this from my colleague, Dr. Grace Lou at Sunnybrook, because we just did an endo podcast for another platform and she was invited to speak as well. Um, and so typically as fertility doctors, we think, yes, we did the IVF, got embryos, they stuck, you're in the first trimester, you're golden. And we always thought that endometriosis can um, come down and get better because your pregnancy, you're not having menstrual periods. But what I learned is that it can have an impact on the first, second, and third trimester. So the first trimester, there might be something associated with miscarriage risk. I mean, in general, in my clinical practice, I have not seen that endo causes a higher miscarriage rate. And I don't think there's any um, good, strong published evidence to suggest that, but there is 
stuff that's coming out that there might be something there with the inflammation, it does make sense. There is a higher incidence of preterm labor, more difficult C-sections, obviously, because of endometriotic implants if you're a, a, a later stage endo patient. So there are implications in pregnancy. Um, does it mean all patients should have surgery to clear it all out before they actually get pregnant? No, not necessarily, but there might be some effect. Um, and even, you know, as we sort of follow along patients and they're later in their 40s and entering menopause, most patients do better postmenopausally, but not all of them. Sometimes they still have symptoms because even when you're postmenopause, there is still low levels of hormones floating around to stimulate endometriosis. So, um, various stages throughout a woman's life right. that can be affected. Right. Okay. And then we're now jumping back to treatment. Do you yeah. find because, you know, perhaps they have more lesions, perhaps less blood flow, is there more resistance to um, the actual hormonal therapies, including like progesterone? Yeah. yeah. So part of the receptiva test is exactly that. So if your BCL2 is uh, upregulated, uh, sorry, BCL6 is upregulated, then you have more progesterone resistance, and that's why you're not implanting. And so that's the theory behind that in implantation. Um, resistance to other hormones, yes. If you have endometriosis, especially in your ovaries, I find I kind of increase the dose of IVF meds by one because they are more resistant to stimulation as well because of the inflammation and because of the presence of ovarian cysts. So I, tend, I, I tend, find I tend to need to stimulate them a little harder. Yes. And um, so this is where I'm going to jump in. Yeah, please. Whether do. you know it or not, because I know the background when they see you and, uh, are, you know, us at Alive, um, we'll actually do more acupuncture because we want to really increase the blood volume cool. so that when they're, when you're doing the stimulation, it's like, okay, come back tomorrow. You have like very low number. So we're going to do it again and again to help upregulate the hormones that they are getting, right? That's so awesome. That's something better. I learned. So that's great that yeah. if you increase the interval and in, um, the, during the simulation, it can help. So I'm totally on board with that. So yeah, during follicular development, you need more drugs often for fertility stimulation. Um, you know, in the laboratory, we do see poor quality oocytes in endo patients. And sometimes it's interesting, like I'll stimulate a patient and I'll be like, okay, there's one cyst of endo on both sides, but then I go into the follicles and the follicles that look like they were clear and they should be eggs are endo. And you'll hear my nurses say, oh, that one was an endo brown fluid. So sometimes it's there and you don't know it's there because it's kind of a newer endometrioma. Um, so that's a quite classic finding. And sometimes women will yield lower amounts of eggs because what you thought was a follicle was actually endometriosis. Right. So it is a little tricky. And then we worry about infection risk during a retrieval. So I always give antibiotics during an egg retrieval IV for my patients who have endo, just because the last thing you want is to get an infection or have that inflammation spread to the uterus and cause an implantation problem with chronic endometritis when they transfer. Um, so things to look out for. Um, and we talked about implantation and the progesterone resistance. And then, you know, in pregnancy, again, uh, most patients do well, but these are all things that can be affected first through third trimester. Right. Another thing we should mention is postpartum that, yeah. you know, if a woman's breastfeeding, much more limited options, but there's lots of different medical modalities out there. The progesterone IUD is great for endometriosis, Depo-Provera, which is a once in three month progesterone shot. Um, so IUD, um, hormonal IUD, progesterone injections, there's selective progesterone receptor modulators, there's Vizan, there's this new oral GNRH antagonist pill that's like just starting to come out in the US that's been proven to improve pain symptoms. Lots of really cool different treatment modalities up out 
out there. And what I usually tell patients is once you're done your childbearing, because you're in this fertility world where you're doing IVF and transfers and having your babies. But then after that, there's usually a lag time, obviously, before you go into menopause. And that time period can be bridged with birth control pills. If it's not better just from pregnancy alone, can be bridged with birth control pills and all these other medical modalities to help uh, treat endo until you get into menopause. And natural modalities. You just you have got to it, plug yeah. that in there. <laughs> uh, you absolutely do. And that's where we talked about. It's yes. a triad, really. Diet, yes. lifestyle changes, natural modalities, and potentially medication. I do find a lot of patients... Uh, don't do all of the um, more aggressive management outside of fertility therapy. Once they're done, they really try to stick to um, natural and lifestyle modification. And that's where they see the most beneficial results. Thank you for addressing that, because this is exactly what we're going to speak to in our next episode with regards to um, endometriosis. So we're, you know, covering the medical model. And then next time, we're going to look at more of the natural ways to deal with endo. And that works. And, you know, sometimes it is one or the other, but really, like, it's like, let's live in the land of gray, and we have the ability to access all. So why not use it all? Right? I agree. I agree. Complementary integrative care, not alternative care. Yes, I agree. All the way. You know, it's a, it's a complex disease. It is interesting in that patients are all different and individualized. So they respond differently and some things might work for one and not the other. But I think, you know, the take home point is if there's any suspicion, it's like something I always like, I feel like a broken record. I talk about this all the time. I think women should be proactive about their reproductive health, get tested and see where you stand. And if you find something like endometriosis, much like any ovarian reserve issues, you can sort of manage it in whatever way um, that's decided with this complementary um, approach and it might help you in the long run. Thank you so much. And you know what, when, if you're listening or the tail end of listening to this, share it with your friends, colleagues, loved ones, anyone who will listen, because this is such an important conversation and it gets missed. Some people don't even know they have it. It does. It does get missed a lot. So yes, I agree. 